The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The costs uh, are very high, and, you know, lots of things are built in there. Not just the immediate costs of the invasion, the costs of reconstruction, of the occupation, but then of, since the insurgency happened afterwards, all the human costs uh, to to U.S. soldiers, the long-term medical care that they need for PTSD and for other injuries. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 12th, 2022. Foreign-imposed regime change is a policy tool that a number of countries, but most frequently the United States, has used to establish friendly regimes and align interests in regions around the world. With the ongoing unrest in Iran and the war in Ukraine, foreign-imposed regime change is in the news once again. But conversations around foreign-imposed regime change often occur without reference to the whole historical record. Hindsight might suggest that foreign-imposed regime change can be done, but that it just needs to be done better, that we just need more resources or better strategy. To evaluate the efficacy of foreign-imposed regime change in a systematic way, I talked to someone who's looked at every instance of foreign-imposed regime change during the past two centuries. Alexander Downs, professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, wrote a book about it called Catastrophic Success, why foreign-imposed regime change goes wrong. With his data set, he draws out the lessons we can learn from attempts of foreign-imposed regime change over time. Ultimately, he argues that even when foreign-imposed regime change works, its successes don't last very long, and the downsides of regime change are actually built into the process of trying to achieve it in the first place. It's The Lawfare Podcast, October 12th. Alexander Downs on the foreshadowed failures of foreign-imposed regime change. I want to start off by asking you to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Let us know, is that an example of foreign-imposed regime change? And how do you define foreign-imposed regime change? Sure. Thanks for having me. The Ukraine war would have been a foreign-imposed regime change had it succeeded. It seems clear to me that uh, Vladimir Putin's intent was to uh, launch a blitzkrieg, get to Kiev very quickly and overthrow the Zelensky regime uh, and put someone of his own choosing in power uh, to kind of run the country on his behalf. Now, that could have been a temporary uh, thing before annexation. We sort of don't know because it, it failed to happen, luckily. But ones that have succeeded recently, the United States and its NATO allies in Libya helped with air power to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, and obviously, the Afghanistan uh, 2001 and Iraq 2003 cases are direct, you know, quite direct applications of force. So what do we mean exactly by foreign and post-regime change? Well, it's the the overthrow of 
the leader of one state by the government of another state. So pretty straightforward. And that tends to happen in one of three ways. Uh, one is straight up invasion, as in the, uh, the Iraq case in 2003. Uh, the second is through coercion. So threats of force, please leave or else we may uh, intervene and, and attack. Uh, and the third is by working with forces already in the country, so domestic, either rebels uh, or opposition groups. And that can be sort of the trickiest to identify. So the rule of thumb I try to follow is, is are there agents of the intervening state inside the target state working towards regime change? Is it the official policy, if not enunciated at the time, but that you can look at in retrospect, find in government documents to overthrow the regime? And then how likely would it have been to happen absent the external intervention? So do they play, the outsiders play the sort of crucial key role in undermining and helping to overthrow uh, the regime? And just to be clear, we don't count for instance, UN operations or other non-state-to-state activity as being foreign-imposed regime change, even though that might ultimately be some sort of goal that it has? There are, there are a lot of related concepts here floating around. So one is uh, occupation, so military occupation of a, of a foreign state or part of a foreign state. That can involve regime change. So Iraq was a regime change that was followed by an occupation. But not all occupations involve uh, regime change. Decolonization is another. So my part of my definition is that the target country that you're trying to overthrow has to be an independent state already. So decolonizing, leaving, you know, having some influence in what government comes to power in a newly independent state is outside of, of what I'm talking about. Similarly, the country that you're overthrowing needs to remain independent, at least nominally, right? There can be an occupation and so forth, but it's, it's different from annexation. And then, you know, humanitarian interventions or UN interventions, peacekeeping, these are usually unlikely to involve uh, overthrow. The UN is, you know, its key watchword is neutrality, and it's often there at the invitation of the government. And nowadays, more and more, it's in support of governments because, the nature of civil wars and rebel groups has changed over time, right, from, say, national independence movements to groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So there's more actually support uh, for states now. You can also intervene uh, in support of rebels, which can sometimes amount to foreign-imposed regime change, depending on the extent of the involvement. And what kinds of regime change do you talk about? So I divide them into three types. The most common and the least costly, it's most common because it's least costly, is simply to uh, remove whoever the leader is and put your own leader, the one that you've chosen to, to, to take power afterwards, and not really pay much attention to the institutions. You don't try to democratize the country, for example. You don't intervene extensively uh, in its institutions. You simply kind of swap out one leader for another. That's about 60% of the cases. The second type involves institutional development. And so the intervener does take some steps to either in the, in the democratizing case to facilitate free and fair elections, right, which is the sort of hallmark 
of democracy help write a constitution in many cases. So that's a democratizing one. But you can also uh, develop institutions in a malign direction. So when the Soviet Union uh, intervened to at the end of World War II to create a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, it installed its system, which had a set of institutions uh, headed by a communist party, a Politburo that dominated society, and a set of repressive institutions to tamp down any resistance in society. So there's two directions that institutional development can go, democracy and not democracy. And the third type uh, is what I call restoration uh, regime changes. Uh, and that involves putting a leader who was just removed, like the most recent leader, previous leader in the country, back in power. And those can be more stabilizing, right? Because you're often, it's an ally. So at the end of World War II, the Nazis had thrown out a bunch of governments in Western Europe. Earlier in the war, United States, Britain uh, come in and those governments had been in exile in various places and put them back. And that's a restoration. The 1994 operation in Haiti that brought back Jean-Bertrand Aristide, also a restoration. So those are more benign. And each of those institutional and restoration take up about 20% uh, of the cases. Um, so those are the three types. Right. And which one has the U.S. done the most? Uh, it varies by era. The United States first got into this business uh, in the very early 20th century. And the cases were all in Central America and the Caribbean, countries like Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua again, uh, <laughs> Costa Rica. And most of those at least made a nod towards democratization. So uh, in 1910, 11, 12, uh, in Nicaragua, the United States at least attempted to help run an election. Now it's clear who they wanted to win, uh, which was the conservative side. But there was at least some attempt at that. Similarly, in the Dominican Republic, the idea was there was a lengthy occupation and then, you know, change the institutions of the country, uh, install a democratic government. Now, it didn't last very long, but that was the intent. Whereas in Haiti, it was much more of a, let's just get somebody in, in power. There was another lengthy occupation, but eventually it's like, okay, we got to get out of here. In World War II, right, those were obviously about defeating, you know, great powers who were totalitarian or highly authoritarian states. And there, the idea was these places need to be democratized. They're too important. You can't just leave Hitler in power or the Japanese dictatorship in power. And we need to make these countries into our allies against the Soviet Union. And that's a big part of why those regime changes were successful was the shared external threat that the two countries have. That made Japanese and, and West Germans much more willing to countenance these, the occupation and these changes. Now, during the Cold War, uh, it changed dramatically. Here it was, how can we at least contain the Soviet Union and its allies or even roll them, roll those regimes back? And those were entailed a bunch of interventions uh, in Guatemala, Iran, the DRC in Africa and other places that were very much oriented towards let's get rid of their or the guy we don't like who's maybe we're worried might uh, lean towards the communists and put somebody in who we think will reliably not do that. 
often a right wing kind of person, often in exile, like Carlos Castillo Armas in Guatemala. He was a former army officer. He hadn't been in the country for a while. And we simply got rid of Jacobo Arbenz, who was actually quite democratic. The regime was, was a democracy uh, and put in a, essentially a dictator. Now, since the Cold War ended, there isn't that big threat out there. And the default option has become, again, democratization. Let's spread democracy. And so every uh, intervention for regime change that the United States undertakes or has undertaken since the end of the Cold War has attempted to do what the United States did in West Germany and Japan after World War II, not necessarily thinking about how well those reforms and institutions might work in different places and how easy <laughs> they might be uh, to install. The one kind of exception there, so Afghanistan was undertaken quite suddenly. We didn't really know who was going to come to power. And eventually, we went with Hamid Karzai. Similarly, in Iraq, there was Bush administration's proclivity was not to nation build, but its sort of plan, to the extent there was one, <laughs> to simply cut off the Saddam head, put on a different head, and move on didn't work because the place collapsed. And so that turned into an extended democracy building exercise. So it's varied over time, right? There's these two different impulses uh, going on. And it in part depends on the threat environment, right? Uh, do you think your adversary, typically the Soviet Union, is making inroads or might move into a certain place? You try to block that by putting in your own leader. Right. And would you say that it's right to designate terrorism as this kind of shared external threat that operates similarly to the way that the Soviet Union or the spread of communism operated in that trend era? To a certain degree. And it's the propensity of regimes to harbor or support uh, terrorism that after 9-11 became perceived as an enormous threat for obvious reasons, right? There's a terrible, horrific attack uh, on September 11, 2001, that really brought about a sea change uh, in the way the United States perceived terrorism, because it, there had never been such a, a large attack on the U.S. homeland. This was always a problem in other places. And so regimes that were perceived to be facilitating uh, terrorism, harboring terrorists in the case of the Taliban, had targets on their back. Now, the Taliban, it was clear, they, they decided not to hand over Osama bin Laden and paid the price. Now, the Bush administration tried to make the case in 2002, 2003, that there was a connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. Pretty tenuous, but it was the sort of 1% doctrine. If there's 1% chance that Saddam gets a nuclear weapon and hands it over to terrorists, that's too much. We have to treat that as a certainty. Now, whether he was going to get a nuclear weapon or turn it over to terrorists, I think was highly questionable. But that was the justification. Now, I don't think it was warranted by the facts that we've learned. So that, for a time, was a, was a guiding light. Gaddafi was an exception to that, actually. I mean, he had supported terrorism for a long time uh, earlier on. But he actually both gave up his potential nuclear weapons program uh, shortly after the overthrow of Saddam and had pretty much you know, dialed back on his support for international terrorism. 
And the United States and its allies went after him for a very different reason, which was the humanitarian argument. Now, that's died down recently because, again, the threat environment's now changing, right? It's, we're returning to kind of great power competition. And it remains to be seen whether either side, the United States or China, would engage in this behavior to try and promote friendly regimes, get rid of hostile regimes. And so how do you define success in regime change? Well, there's two ways. One is whether the immediate operation succeeds. And it doesn't always. There's there's tons of examples of, of failures, both overt, open. Say in 1956, the British-French attempt to get rid of uh, Nasser in Egypt. Uh, and covert. Uh, we know from Lindsay O'Rourke's great book, Covert Regime Change, that the United States attempted about 63, 64 covert regime changes, and only about a third of them actually succeeded in, in replacing the regime. The rest failed. So that's the initial stage. Does it succeed in overthrowing the leadership? Then you can define you know, success as creating a reliable, faithful ally that sort of does what you want, that doesn't face civil war or threats of violent removal, like will re remain a friendly state. And it's those areas where proponents of regime change tend to underestimate uh, the pushback that their chosen leaders might face domestically. Can you tell us a little bit more about the types of pushback we see? Is it generally military-based or through protesting or through other means? And how does that change the way that that leader is able to then carry out the initial wishes of the intervener? Sure. So my research, I kind of make the argument that the simple idea of regime change is, is quite appealing, is here's a leader or government that is undertaking some behavior that's contrary to your interests. You decide, hmm, I don't feel like negotiating with them anymore. I'm going to replace them. And that's typically a behavior that a great power can engage in, although not exclusively. But when there's a big power differential, the opportunity is there. It's less costly to undertake. So the assumption there, there's two assumptions. One is that you can replace the leader or government without causing the state to collapse. And the second assumption is that there's no countervailing force that would prevent that leader that you put in from doing what you would like them to do. And so my book talks about both of these. The first is what I call, I think the military is the key institution. If the military collapses uh, upon attack by the outside power, that tends to, rather than sort of surrendering in an organized fashion, that creates the conditions for an immediate insurgency because the army, 100,000, 200,000, however many people it is, takes their guns and flees to the mountains, to the forests, across an international border, and is sort of, you know, the, the key ingredient for, say, if the leader gets away and wants to rally them, think, say, the Khmer Rouge regime in uh, 1979 when it was overthrown by Vietnam, Pol Pot and his coterie of, of Khmer Rouge flee to Thailand uh, and rally the forces and return to wage a decade-long uh, insurgency. So military disintegration uh, is a key factor that can breed immediate armed resistance. So 
it can be either be the, the same leader that you overthrew, or it can be another person from the same regime, right? So Saddam was not leading the resistance in Iraq, but there were plenty of other Ba'athist military officers available to do that. And the, the insurgents in the beginning, in the first few years, were heavily drawn from the Iraqi military. Now, the other thing that can go wrong is a different kind of domestic pushback. So I call this, it's a, it's a form of a principal agent problem. And I call it the problem of competing principles because it, it means there's two principles trying to control the same agent, the outside power and the domestic population. So what's a principal agent problem, you might ask? So this is simply when uh, there is a person or a party that uh, is trying to, say, hire another party to do a job for them. So the simple example I like to give is uh, my gutters are, are jammed at home. And I want someone to come clean them. I want them to do a good job. I want them to get rid of that big clog in the downspout that's causing them to overflow. Uh, I'd like them to come quickly. I'd like them to do a good job. I'd like to not pay a lot of money. So those are my interests. The agent would like to sort of, well, come on their own time, you know, get rid of the leaves, but not work too hard, get well paid uh, to do that. So there's an interest asymmetry built into the situation. Uh, another example is my dean at the Elliott School, who is my boss, right, my principal. She would love me to teach great classes, do great research, do all these things. But, you know, I'd like to stay home in my pajamas and not work that hard and teach my classes remotely, teach the same syllabus 25 years in a row. There's some interest divergence there. And it's very hard for me as a principal to know exactly what the agent is doing. So there's information problem too. So I'm not going to be home when they come and clean my gutters. So I don't know whether they got the big clog out of the downspout. The agent might also not be of high quality. It's hard for me to screen. Like I just look up who's the gutter cleaner in the area. I don't know. So the agent might not be uh, very good. So there's all these problems like built in. So when you take this to regime change, say the sort of modal case is an intervener overthrows the government, they put another person in power, and they'd like them to sort of follow their own, their interests, the intervener's interests. Now, that would be great and easy if there was no countervailing force. But it turns out the domestic population gets a vote one way or another, like an actual vote uh, at the ballot box or through the use of protest, coup, violent resistance. If the agent, the leader that's been installed, is hewing too closely to the intervener's interests and ignoring sort of what the domestic population might like, the domestic population might go after them. And then the opposite is true. If they go like, hey, the domestic population is a threat to me. I need to do what, what they would like me to do. The intervener says, hey, 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 what are you doing? Uh, you're supposed to be following my dictates. Hmm, I might need to sanction you, replace you, attack different kinds of ways to punish that agent. And so the key assumption there is that the interests of the intervener and the domestic public in the target state are not the same. They diverge in some ways. This creates this Gumby problem, right? The leader is pulled, being pulled in two different directions. My favorite illustration of this is a, an old Far Side cartoon where there's a, a guy standing in front of two doors and behind him is the devil with a pitchfork, right? 
Uh, and he says, just just choose one, right? And it's, uh, you're sort of, you know, no matter what you do, you you can get in trouble. Yeah. So to summarize, your main argument is that foreign imposed regime change doesn't work because of this military integration, disintegration, and because of this problem of competing principles. Is there any way to avoid those issues? Sure. In the principal agent literature, so that the principal has tools available to it to try and incentivize the agent, right, with either threats of punishment or offers of benefits, you know, carrots and sticks. These are often hard to make credible because if you threaten to punish a leader that you yourself put in power and have an interest in keeping in power, they're like, why should I, you know, you're going to help me anyway, no matter what I do. And the same with benefits. Oh, you promised me benefits? Well, you're going to give me the benefits anyway, no matter what I do. So that's that's very hard to, to do. Now, the different types of regime change have different implications for this. So if you are a democracy and you're able to successfully transform the other side into a democracy, you know, we know this thing, the democratic peace, democracies are less likely to have major conflicts of interest that would drive them to war. So at least you're going to have you know, peaceful relations. You're not going to agree about everything. But that is a way to circumvent that interest asymmetry. The other way is to repress one of the principles. So if you install a repressive enough regime, institutions in the target country such that the domestic principle can't express its interests, that also short circuits the problem, right? Because there's no longer, you no longer face a threat uh, for carrying out the intervener's wishes. And then the other way is by restoring a leader that you didn't have a conflict with in the first place. So another country comes in, puts in a leader. You don't want that one to be in power. You then are able to bring the other one back. And then oftentimes you already had good relations with that leader there's no sort of big interest asymmetry, and therefore that's, that problem is also short-circuited. But if the initial impetus to go and have or impose regime change is to democratize, then doesn't that kind of short-circuiting ultimately fail the initial purpose? Uh, so it can. Um, a lot of it depends on whether you're successful. So the way I define institutional regime changes is by what the intervener is trying to do. Is it, say, facilitating free and fair elections? I would call that a democratizing regime change or a democracy-promoting regime change. It's not whether it's successful, and it may not be successful, and it tends to not be successful sort of systematically in certain kinds of places, those places being very poor, very heterogeneous, ethnic groups that are in conflict with each other. Those are much harder places for a democracy to succeed where there's also a lot of corruption and things like this. And so the problems of regime change tend to manifest in those places, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, right? And lots of other, other places in, uh, in addition. Where democratization is successful, which tends to happen in richer uh, countries, established middle class, economically better off, homogeneous populations, read Germany and Japan, then you you can uh, short, also short circuit that interest asymmetry. The problem there, of course, the catch is to do that against a very rich, powerful country, 
involves fighting a really huge war. <laughs> and so if you are willing to do that, you know, you might have uh, success. So it's kind of a paradox, right? Regime change is more likely or democratization is more likely to be successful where it's very hard and less likely to be successful where it's much easier or where the costs are lower. Right. The figure was something like $3 trillion for regime change in Iraq. The costs uh, are very high and you know, lots of things are built in there, not just the immediate costs of the invasion, the costs of reconstruction, of the occupation, but then of since the insurgency happened afterwards, all the human costs uh, to, to U.S. soldiers, the long-term medical care that they need for PTSD and for other injuries, the costs really pile up. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has 
dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is Delete Me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. It strikes me that the two main reasons you say for an imposed regime change fail are potentially something that is a bit obvious or something that lawmakers and policymakers should have guessed would happen. Um, so why do you think we keep on going and doing this over and over again in spite of the fact that you can kind of tell that if someone external to your state tries to influence in such an intimate way, the outcomes are probably not going to be great. This is a great question and one that uh, I think about a lot uh, and a lot of people ask about. The United States, after all, has overthrown 33 uh, individual leaders over the span of 100 and, uh, 120 years or so. And other countries similarly have done this repeatedly. And you'd say, oh, well, Having read my book, they see that hmm, you can have a lot of negative consequences or even from their own experience. They see the British, after all, invaded Afghanistan three times and did regime changes in two of them. And they were utterly disastrous for the immediate and longer term uh, consequences. Right. By the time we went and it was the sixth time, right? Yes. So the British a uh, couple of times and then the Soviets uh, went in, in in 1979 and changed the regime and then changed it again. And then the United States comes along 
and does it too. So why does this keep happening? One reason is that leaders uh, tend to focus on the short term, right? They focus on how are we going to affect the regime change, which often involves an, a very a very complicated military operation, for example, or where are we going to find the person uh, to do it? How are we going to get it done? And so there's a sort of myopia that short-term thinking that says we need to focus on the way and then things will sort of work out afterwards. This was, uh, if you remember, if folks remember before the, the invasion of Iraq, General uh, Eric Shinseki went before congressional committee and they were trying to get out of him like, well, how many troops do you think will be needed? And he was doing his best to dodge this, but he eventually said, you know, we're going to need a few hundred thousand to pacify the place. And there to later, Paul Wolfowitz comes along and says, that's wildly, that's a wild overestimate. That's way out. Why would it take more troops to occupy Iraq than it would be to overthrow Saddam in the first place? So there's this sense that once you do it, you'll get someone that you want and things will, will work out. So that involves an underestimation of or a lack of appreciation of the that the interests in a target population might not be the same as yours, and that there won't be any pushback against that leader. Uh, a second reason is that uh, the information that the intervener is getting about that precise thing, like is regime change going to be welcomed? What will be the attitude of the population afterwards? Uh, is systematically biased. Often that you don't have a good window into opinion in a, in a foreign state, especially 100 years ago. And uh, you, the information you're getting is coming from parties who want you <laughs> to undertake regime change. Many of those are, can be exiles. The picture on the front of my, on the book cover is the execution of Maximilian, who was an Austrian archduke who was talked into uh, taking over uh, the empire of Mexico by Napoleon III. Now, where was Napoleon III getting his information? Conservative Mexican exiles who were whispering in his ear, oh, yes, yes, Mexicans will welcome a monarchy. This is, there's lots of support for this back home. Fast forward to 2002-2003, Ahmad Chalabi is uh, an exile who's providing a lot of information intelligence to the Bush administration about how things will likely go. Uh, and this is something you see over and over again, right? There's exiles, uh, interested parties, who in some cases want to be the, the leader themselves, providing that information, and it's just it's biased in favor of it becoming a rosy scenario. In the U.S. case, I would say many, if not most, leaders have the wrong software in their head. They have the West Germany-Japan scenario, and they say, hey, those countries were totalitarian, they were not good candidates for democracy, and yet it succeeded there. Now, we've since learned that a totalitarian mindset, which, actually, you know, to be honest, most Germans did not have, uh, is not, you know, an impediment to democracy. There are certain foundations for democratization that those countries had, uh, which a lot of other countries lack. And so it's this idea that, well, if it work there, it can work here without an appreciation of the differences. And there have been some really great articles written since the invasion of Iraq saying, well, let's compare 
the conditions in these places and why uh, you wouldn't expect, you know, to work here if it worked there. Now that's, you know, most policymakers are not reading academic journals and, uh, you know, have that kind of information at their fingertips. They have mental models. They have precedents. They have analogies in their heads uh, about what works and what doesn't. And so that, I think, is, is partially responsible. And what about this idea that we might have a moral imperative to do for an imposed regime change anyway, for instance, through this idea of responsibility to protect or genocide prevention, mitigation? So yes, this is a relatively recent development. If you look at the history of regime change, it's generally not undertaken for humanitarian reasons. So ending a genocide was a, was a a happy side effect of defeating Nazi Germany, but it was not the reason that the Allies wanted to defeat Nazi Germany is because they're an incredibly powerful state taking over Europe, trying to take over Soviet Union and a very hostile state. There's a couple of other interesting cases, both in 1979 when Vietnam attacked Cambodia to remove the Khmer Rouge. You'd say, oh, that's because the, the Khmer Rouge were committing this terrible genocide that killed over a million people. No, no, no. It was because the they were also attacking Vietnam and killing lots of villagers. They had a border dispute. And the Vietnamese just decided, we can't negotiate with these guys anymore. We're going to get rid of them. Similarly, in Uganda, you had Idi Amin, who was an incredibly brutal dictator. And the Ugandans finally decided to go after him when he invaded this place called the Kagera Salient, which was a piece of territory. And they said, this will not stand. We cannot deal with this. So it's for the external aggression reasons. Now, you know, people ginned up humanitarian arguments for going after Saddam after the fact. You know, he was also a brutal guy, but that's not the, what was driving it. The, the big case here is Libya. You know, a civil war breaks out in the Arab Spring, and Gaddafi is attacking the rebels, and he says some kind of blood-curdling things, which led policymakers in Western countries, including the United States, to believe that a mass killing was imminent. And so the idea was we have a responsibility to protect, right? This, This idea that has arisen slowly, but over time, especially in the last 10, 20 years, that if a government is either can't, won't protect its own people or is actively exterminating them, that the international community has this responsibility to intervene and stop that. Now, as we all know, that's applied quite selectively. No one's intervening in China to stop the imprisonment of the Uyghurs or intervened in Rwanda and various other places. But this was a case that was both seemingly morally compelling and everybody hated Gaddafi, right? He'd been around for a long time. He'd supported terrorism, the Lockerbie bombings, like uh, all this terrible stuff. He tried to get nuclear weapons. No, there was nobody who was going to defend this guy. And so the temptation was there. And there was a reason, a seemingly morally compelling reason to do it. And so that removed any sort of impediment. Similarly, in Syria, you know, humanitarian arguments were made there as well. Um, Unfortunately, another less morally motivated pair of countries intervened on the side of the government. Uh, and the United States was not willing to to pay, and its its attempts to organize the Syrian resistance were pretty ineffective. So that has become uh, and may 
you know, we don't know, may continue to become uh, a compelling reason to do these. I mean, I would argue they will not happen absent some other interest uh, in the outcome. And lots of lots of countries were really happy to see the end of Muammar Gaddafi, but they weren't willing to invest anything afterwards <laughs> to deal with the aftermath, which was quite disastrous. Now, we don't know. The international environment is changing again. And the United States was perfectly willing to engage in regime change during the Cold War when it had a big adversary that it perceived as a, as a mortal threat. So it's hard to know, you know, whether the R2P motivation will be a strong one in the future. Uh, and if it is, it's going to be, it will be selectively applied against weak states. But you would still argue that even if there exists some legitimate moral imperative, foreign imposed regime change is not the tool that policymakers should use to try and effectuate change there. It may solve your immediate problem, right? Now, there are some who argue that the Gaddafi's threats were sort of overhyped. He didn't actually say he was going to exterminate civilians, only those who were resisting. You know, okay. But there was some bad things were, were perhaps probable and likely to happen. And... Intervention stopped that, right, and drove his forces back and eventually uh, helped defeat them. They were basically the flying, the air force of the rebels. And yet, uh, what happened afterwards? No, there was no boots on the ground, so to speak. This was, a, this was cheap and easy. Let's do it with air power. We learned from Iraq we don't want to send a lot of ground forces because uh, that will breed resistance. Here, you did the opposite, but that forfeited any influence you might have on the ground. And so there was diplomatic talking, but the place fell apart into competing factions. There were competing rebel groups from different regions. The Islamic State then got a foothold in the country. Gaddafi's vast armory of stockpiled weapons disappeared to all kinds of armed actors, went south into Africa, helped facilitate al-Qaeda and Islamic State rebellions in other states. So... While it can solve media problems, oftentimes it leads to quite different problems. Um, and so, you know, you have to sort of weigh that in the balance. And in a case where you're going to intervene for humanitarian reasons, there's got to be follow through. Or else, you know, the, the places these things are happening are generally kind of basket cases. In the case of Gaddafi, he'd been dictator for 40 years and systematically eliminated anybody <laughs> capable of basically running the country and uh, without him. Uh, so the place had been hollowed out. And when he was gone, guess what? Right, It collapsed. Is there a better tool that policymakers could use instead of foreign imposed regime change, especially given that in some areas of the world, it seems like it's not going to be likely that the U.S. is going to want to leave it alone completely, especially, for instance, the Middle East? It's another great question. And it's a natural question. You say, OK, well, You've shown that there can be all these negative consequences of regime change. And it doesn't always help you, even if it doesn't lead to the immediate overthrow of your chosen leader, it can generate pushback that can threaten their regime or prevent them from doing implementing policies that are friendly to you. But if we're not going to do that, what's our tool? How are we going to influence uh, these kinds of states? And the answer is there's no easy answer. Right. Look at all. Look at the different options. There's diplomacy. 
you know, so think of Iran in this context. Do you negotiate with the Iranians on various questions, say the nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons threat, or not, and try to replace the regime? Now, people make arguments on both sides, but the attempt to sort of deal with them by negotiations was immediately criticized because it didn't cover everything. It didn't cover the ballistic missile threat. It didn't cover support for terrorism. And yet, the United States made all these kinds of similar agreements with the Soviet Union, which was far more dangerous uh, than Iran is or ever will be. So the, the sort of piecemeal or partial agreements with countries like this often get undermined domestically. And we saw when a different government came to power, they, uh, they tore up the agreement. Um, so diplomacy, you know, has its, has its drawbacks. Uh, can we put sanctions, economic sanctions, which are our favorite tool uh, to coerce other states? And we use it incredibly frequently now. That has a really mixed record of success. Different studies have sort of found different rates of success, but, you know, somewhere between, you know, 5% and 30 to 40%. And you can argue in particular cases, maybe it helped bring the Iranians to the table and so forth, but it's not reliable. Okay, can we use threats to compel another country to change its behavior, stop doing something that we don't like? So threats of, threats of force, threats of intervention, these two are not reliable. They succeed you know, a quarter to a third of the time uh, in getting compliance uh, from the other side. So, and those are just, you know, those are a handful of your, of your options, and none of them are, a ma- there's no magic bullet out there. They each have some kind of marginal chance of, of getting some, some change in behavior. But the question is, okay, what are the costs if it goes wrong? Regime change has the potential for really huge costs. And in a lot of cases, the interests at stake are not enormous, there can be disagreement on this, like how big of a threat was Saddam Hussein? Unclear, right? Some thought he was a huge threat that needed to be eliminated. Others were like, no, you can contain, contain Saddam. It's not that big a threat. But whatever you thought, like what we got afterwards, uh, given what we discovered, that there was no real nuclear weapons program anymore, and we played $3 trillion and get bogged down in a, in a quagmire, you know, that may not be... <laughs> It might, may not be worth the cost. So how bad is it going to fail? If it, What are the costs of failure if it fails? And that tends to weigh against regime change. Not every time, of course, right? There's not every regime change goes wrong. But it's something you really need to take seriously, especially when it's always going to be a temptation for the United States. The United States is a very powerful country. It can undertake these options uh, a lot of times. But it may, you may not always want to. You know, other options are imperfect, but they're usually worth a try. What's your assessment on the future of foreign imposed regime change? Who's going to be the next one to do it? Is it <laughs> going to be us again? Uh, you know, I would love to think that. The lesson of Afghanistan was and Iraq, especially Iraq, was shouldn't do this anymore. But it turned out, the lesson was, oh, you shouldn't, you should just not do it in this way. Uh, 
which was you know a, a large ground force presence that that helped breed resistance and so forth. And hence you got Libya, which was an air power option. What I see looking over the last couple decades is anytime something happens, uh, civil war breaks out, a brutal dictator uh, is doing something we don't like, the president says something like, Muammar Gaddafi's got to go, right? He needs to leave. Bashar al-Assad, he needs to go, right? And then Biden's infamous, oh, Vladimir Putin, he needs to be gone. Which he later clarified, but yes. Right. The, the, the aides came, came running out and spun it. So this was consistent with U.S. policy, which was not oriented. Sure, everyone would love it. Or most people would love it if Vladimir Putin disappeared tomorrow, but that's not likely to happen. And so how do you deal with, with these, these folks? So given the temptation and proclivity to, you know, especially you can make the argument spreading democracy and opposing tyranny and all these things that are quite important to us now, so push in that direction, plus the power differential in most cases pushes in that direction. So I can't rule it out, the United States doing it again. I you know, don't have a good prediction right now. I don't think we're going to do this in Iran. Iran is a country with about three times or more the population of Iraq, got a very entrenched regime, heavy uh, instruments of coercion. How would you get it done? Very hard to figure how you would do this because nobody wants to invade Iran. Could you assassinate the leader? Sure, but another similar leader may very well come to power. Uh, so I don't see that as imminent. Russia, hopefully, well, it's hard to say. Like you would think Russia, Vladimir Putin would be chastened by what has happened. He thought this would be a two or three day thing. Get to Kiev, boom, bye-bye Zelensky, problem solved, right? He again did not think about Ukrainians get a vote. Right? They'd already throw, overthrown two pro-Russian leaders right, in the past 20 years. Uh, so that the sentiment there is obviously you know, miles apart from, from his. But he's doubling down. right? He's really going after it. And he may be less able to do this elsewhere. But there are you know, other logical targets if he somehow like pulled it out. Now, I, I don't think it's likely because he's going to be very much weakened. He's mobilizing 300,000 people. They don't want to be in the army. They're running for their lives uh, uh, across borders to get away from this. He's bringing in people that are not his core constituency, so ethnically diverse folks from Siberia who don't want to be fighting there. They're not going to be trained. It's not going to turn the tide. I think the big question is the U.S.-China competition that's already started and is coming. China, by the way, has not uh, carried out a single case uh, of regime change. Their you know, desire to reunify Taiwan, in their view, is not regime change. Right? Taiwan is part of China. Others view that differently. Right? They say <laughs> Taiwan is, a, is an independent state. It has its own government. Da, 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 da. But that's a very different assessment. Right? And China says, why are you meddling? This is our business. Right? This is our part of our country. And so they've, they've actually shown very little propensity. They do not show up uh, in my list of, of regime changers. So, you know, they're exerting their influence in different ways, right? The Belt and Road Initiative, uh, providing lots of loans with low strings attached. You don't have to do austerity. You don't have to reform your 
uh, government sector. You just have to buy from us. And so it's much more of a what we would call soft power kind of influence. Now, in the, in the past, the United States has been willing to do regime changes in a similar situation. And the question is like, well, who would you do? It's a very different theater out there, right? Most of the countries are already your allies. And in my view, we're not going to go after North Korea. Not that that's that related to the China question, but Japan is in our corner, Philippines off and on, Australia, New Zealand, countries you know on the continent, Thailand and other, other places are... China is the proximate threat to them. Their natural inclination is going to be to balance with us, even though we're the more powerful country. We're 5,000 miles away across a huge ocean. So the propensity for regime change there I don't think is big unless you know a key ally tries to like re- reverse, but I don't really see that happening. So it may be you know, in minor power you know, disputes between smaller countries, but I don't see imminent cases on the horizon. And that's probably for the best. That's a Yes, it's a good thing, most likely. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks very much. I really appreciate you having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. You can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahowell, And your audio engineer this episode was Isabel Kirby McGowan of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.